So, if you have your Bibles, please, please turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. So, just to review, under in the Old Testament, Nehemiah is in the Old Testament, and God had given that those people, the Jewish people, his chosen people, land in modern-day Palestine. And after a generation after David, their greatest king under Solomon, this, the, the kingdom split into two. They had a northern kingdom with their ten tribes and a southern kingdom with their two tribes, two and a half tribes, because they didn't like each other anymore. And all their kings were bad in the northern kingdom. No king worshipped the Lord. They set up their own idols, false gods, um, the golden calf. They worshipped everything under the sun except for Yahweh, the one true God. So God, when he sent Moses, he said, if you obey these rules, you will be blessed. Your enemies will be defeated. You will live in joy and peace. He said, if you do not obey, you will be scattered among the nations. And that's exactly what happened in 721 BC, the Assyrians came, took northern Israel, enslaved them, and they ended up intermingling with the people, and those tribes are lost. They're gone. They're, they don't exist anymore. They're never heard from again. The southern kingdom had mostly bad kings, but a couple good kings. So they had a little more time, but God also promised judgment on them. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar under the Babylonian Empire came in, took the city, took most of the people, and brought them into slavery. And then a few years later, the people that were still left in the southern kingdom rebelled against the king. He came back, he destroyed the city, he destroyed the temple, and took most of the remaining people. If he didn't kill them, he enslaved them. So this is kind of where we are in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is, is a uh, part three of a three-part trilogy. Ezra and Nehemiah in the Hebrew Bible were connected books. They were not two books, they were one book. And that, that one book has three parts. In the first book, Zerubbabel, one of the rulers of the exile, he was allowed by the Persian Empire who currently ruled over them after the Babylonians ruled over them. The Persians came, wiped out the Babylonians, and they became the property the Jews became the property of the uh, Persian Empire. And Cyrus the Great allowed Zerubbabel to come back and rebuild the temple. Because the temple was in, in ruins, and that was the, the way they worshipped the one true God. God made a temple. He said, this is where you will worship me. And this is where you face when you pray. This is the center of God's presence on the earth at that time. So he rebuilt the temple. And then 60 years later, Ezra came. He wanted to bring back the, the rules of the Bible because the Torah had mostly been lost. And he was the first scribe. He rewrote. He, took, he found a copy of the law, the Torah, and he rewrote it and taught the people, here's what we need to do to obey God. And then the contemporary of Ezra is Nehemiah. 
And this is, he is under Artaxerxes. That's who Nehemiah was serving. He was a cupbearer, a pretty prestigious job as a, as a servant. And he was just a regular guy. He was not a scholar. He was not a king. He was just a regular guy in God's court. And we talked about last week that Nehemiah encountered the difficult circumstance of what was happening to the Jewish people. And he had the, um, he was willing to feel that and he mourned and he fasted and he prayed. And we heard Nehemiah's pray, prayer in chapter 1. And now we're moving into chapter 2. So he prayed for months. And this is where we, we begin in chapter 2. So we can read the passage. Nehemiah chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. Can we get the slide about the, the journey? Just so you can kind of get a visual of that. We'll, we'll continue. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forests, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I rose in the night, I and a few of the men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I wrote. wrote. There's the next one about the, um, the, the Jerusalem temple. Yes. So maybe this can help, help us follow, follow along. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gates, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates had been destroyed by fire. Then it went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by, by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returns. And the, the officials did not know where I had gone or where I was going. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. 
Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them that I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had been had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonites and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at, jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. That's a mouthful. Okay? So here's my big idea. We need to be ready as believers for opportunities, for risk-taking, and for planning for God's kingdom. We need to be ready for opportunities, for risk-taking, and planning for God's kingdom. So my, I'm going to be jumping around a little bit, so just try to stay with me if you can. Um, we're going to talk first about opportunities. So we know that he wept, he mourned, he prayed when his brother told him the news about what what's the situation was in Jerusalem. Completely destroyed, decimated. <clears throat> right? And I said last week that this is not just something, a physical problem. This is a shame problem. They felt the shame because they are exposed. Right? They're exposed physically from enemies. They're exposed. People are making fun of them like we saw later in the chapter. They have no honor because their city is in ruins. Even though the temple had been rebuilt, even though the law had been preached, Jerusalem, the main fortress city, was destroyed. has not been rebuilt. So, months had passed. You often think when we pray, like God immediately does it. But if you look at chapter 2, months had passed. And an opening happened. Right? This, he's just doing his job, serving the king wine, living his life, but clearly the emotional effects of what had happened were still with him. He was probably praying and crying out to God continuously, and that affects how you feel. Because he's the cupbearer, he gives drinks to the king. And clearly there must have been a relationship between the king and Nehemiah, because he probably saw him every day. Right? Just like your co-workers or your boss at your job, you have lots of interface with them. And the king knew that he looked sad and was not sick. Perceptive of the king. Like, this is not just, you're sad. You can see it on his face. And it's, this is not just being sick. You are sadness of the heart, he says. And Nehemiah let his sadness show. And this itself could carry the death penalty. Right? Because you're in front of the king. You're supposed to be happy because you are, the king is like a god in those days. Right under the Persian Empire. They're like the king slash God. So you're sad in front of the king, you're sad in front of God, that could carry the death penalty. And he could have said anything else besides the truth. He said, oh, maybe I am sick, I'm really sorry, your majesty. But no, he tells the truth here. Right? He saw an opportunity to talk to the king about his people. Right? He said, this is sadness of the heart. This is, so Nehemiah saw this golden opportunity to explain the situation that's happening. He probably hasn't said anything for months. So he tells the truth. 
He says, why should I not be sad? First, he, you know, let the king live forever. He is, he's kind, okay? Just like many people today are not kind when they share the gospel. They just tell you you're going to burn in hell. Not a great way to share. So first, he says, let the king live forever. And then he says, why should I not be sad when my city lies in ruins? He told the truth. And the king knows he wants something. So he asks, what are you requesting? And he prays before he gets those answers. He prays again. This guy is a, a great leader, but he's also a great prayer warrior, we see. Like he prayed for months, and then he sends a quick one up to, to God right before he gives his answer, right? It's like, God, help me say the right thing. So my question for us is, what are we looking for opportunities for God to answer our prayers? Are we looking for them? Often we just pray and then just go about our lives. And maybe God, in the opportunities in your world and in your circumstance, God has a plan to answer those prayers if we are looking for the opportunity. Right? Often we pray, and I do this too, I'm preaching to myself, we pray and then we just forget about what we just asked about. Be like, well, God's not going to do it, so I'm just going to live my life. That's not living in faith. We need to live in faith. Like Nehemiah, he was living in faith. He was praying constantly and consistently that something would be done about the walls of Jerusalem. It was before him constantly because it showed even in his emotions. So are the things that we are praying for, are they constantly on our hearts? Are they on our heart and on our minds? Are we looking for opportunities for God to answer? Or we just pray and then we think of praying as like a witch, right? There are a million opportunities every day for God to work in your life and those around us. God is at work and he's always at work. We don't see God physically because God is spirit, right? But God is working in a million relationships every second of the day. And we can be a part of that work if we're looking for the right opportunity. Many of us, the problem is we're so busy to see it, right? We might have our devotions. If we're, if we're lucky, we get 15 minutes in. And then soon we're going through our day. We're making breakfast. We're getting the kids ready. We're going to work. We're working all day. Tons of stuff to do. We're behind everything. We get home. We have a snack. We play with our kids. We do whatever we need to do. And then we try to get to bed before midnight and do it all over again. I know exactly what that's like. I know 100% what that's like, because my days are just like that. And we have our own agenda for each day. We often, okay, what, do, what does Chris need to get done today? And I need to make that happen. Not always thinking about, okay, what does God want to happen for this day? What opportunities can I use to bless people in my life? How can I take time out and love and serve people? God needs to fit into our agenda, ladies and gentlemen. He needs to fit somewhere into our agenda for the day. We need to be listening and waiting. And this takes prayer and awareness as believers. We pray. I do my devotions. I'm pretty consistent with it. But what I forget about is, like, am I taking opportunities 
throughout the day maybe for God to answer a prayer. To answer a prayer of my own, to answer someone else's prayer. And we need to be aware of what's going on around us. What spiritual things are we seeing when people are talking to us? And if you have discernment, if you have wisdom, you might be able to speak into somebody's life and have a huge transformation into what? Into someone's life. To make them closer to God. To encourage them. To love them. To maybe give them some tough love if needed. Right? We have to be aware as we pray. How can I love and serve people? We need to look for God to work. If we're not looking for God to work, we will not see Him working. Right? Because it's not as obvious. God doesn't always slap us in the face and say, this is your opportunity. Sometimes He does when He really wants to make a point. But many times it's subtle, right? It talks in... Um, the Old Testament about the still small voice of God that Ezekiel heard. God was not in the fire and the earthquake and the flood. He was in the still small voice. So that principle holds true in Nehemiah too. Are we listening for opportunities for God to work? And unfortunately, we're really good at looking at opportunities for ourselves, right? So, well, I need something. I'm going to use this opportunity to advance myself. Not that it's always wrong to, to look for opportunities for ourselves, but we also need to be thinking, okay, how can I serve this person for God's kingdom? How can I lead them closer to Jesus instead of just to my own agenda? But I know it's challenging. I know many of us are super busy people. I'm not trying to beat you over a head with a stick. But we need to be ready to drop our agenda if we see God working. Right, because we have many obligations, of course. But you know what? This is when my wife makes fun of me for. I my thought is, if I can get all the things done on my to-do list, my life will be happy and easy. You know what the problem with that is? Your to-do list never. It gets longer over time. You will never. You will die before you fulfill your to-do list. Right, and sometimes it's good, it's good to say, you know, I've done what I I need to do for today. I'm going to spend some time with people, spend some time loving them. Right? Our to-do list will never go away, unfortunately. And as much as we're, I am, and maybe some of you are obsessed with checking the boxes, we need to slow down and see where God is working. Where God is working in your life and the people around you. So try to leave some space in your day for relationships, for praying to God, even those quick prayers like Nehemiah did, right? That was just a one-second prayer, not like chapter one. It's like, God, help me know what to say to, to the king right now, because this is cost me my life. And to honor your name. Whatever he prayed, it was short. But we pray that way all the time. It says to pray without ceasing. And that's what God's talking about. We're having a constant conversation with the Lord. Sometimes a, a concentrated time. I do mine usually in the morning where I'm praying and seeking the Lord. But then throughout the day, life is happening, but I'm also trying to be like, okay, God, help me to do this well. Help me to engage with this person well. Help me to love them. Help me not to murder my children. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm seeking God's help, and that's what we need to be doing as a people. Because God, the, this country is looking at us. They're looking for excuses to get rid of us, for many of us. But we want to give them an excuse to be like, these Christians are helping our country. They're helping our people. They are serving this land. 
in amazing ways, and we want to keep them. That's what we want, how their hearts change. As we're looking for opportunities to love them, to bless them, to be kind to them, to share with them. And there's people in your life, right? Nehemiah had the king right next to him. There's people in your life that have influence, that you have influence on, and you need to be looking for those opportunities in your job, with your children, whatever that is. In many people's lives, you are the primary influencer. So you need to be thinking and praying, and I ask you to do this. Leverage your relationships for the kingdom of God, for Jesus. They're not just for you to enjoy. Yes, you, relationships are great. God made us to be in a relationship to enjoy them. But also use them for the kingdom, for Jesus. So, he had opportunities. And then he also took some big risks. Right? He saw an opportunity to, to talk to the king. But that's a big risk that he took. Right? It's a big ask because... You know, the king said, what are you requesting? He could have said, just to serve you, my king. Or can you send somebody to check on the welfare of my people? But no, he had a big ask. And what you ask of the king can, de can determine your future with the king. It could also cost him his life. If he felt like he was being presumptuous, the king, there was no, there was no law. The king was the law. Right? If you ask too much from the king, he'd just be like, no, you're done. And he also has, it took a risk, he did a good job, a good life, personally. Nehemiah is living it, living it well. Right? All he do is serve the king wine and drinks all day. I'm not working in the fields. I probably get to sit at the king's table and eat his food. His life is not bad, personally. But instead he says, you know what? I want to go. I want to go there. I want to cross all these territories, like the map. Right? If you look at the map, can you, can you get me back there? It's a long journey, right? It's a long journey and a dangerous journey, right? Because there are bandits, there are wild animals. Okay, there's no, like, interstate highway that's going to take them there. You're going by foot. Or with, with an animal. And people are looking for opportunities to kill, steal, and destroy. So he has to go to this wilderness to rebuild Judah. Right? And he'll likely never get his job back. He's aware of this. Even if the king says, yes, his good job, his good life is ending. So he's taking risks there. And he, he doesn't even know, can I get this done? Right? He's going in some faith. Right? If the people don't want to rebuild it, he cannot do it all himself. There's a lot of walls that need to be rebuilt. There's some, a lot of gates that need to be repaired. He cannot do it one man. So he's like, he is acting in faith, taking a big risk. If he goes to the people like, we don't know you. We don't care about you. We work for the king. Then, his, then, what, then what does he do? Right? He has to go back in shame. Same in verse 10. If you skip down to verse 10. Right? There's enemies, right? There's a risk of opposition, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. These are actually fascinating. As I was doing my study, 
Sanballat the Horonite was actually mentioned in other papyri during the time of Nehemiah. So this is, what's interesting about this is not just a story, it's also history. All these names, Artaxerxes, Cyrus, Tobiah, these are historical records that we have other non-biblical sources that confirm who these people are during the same time period. And these people were likely um, like governors underneath the king. They call them servants in the text here. They're likely governors of regions. And these people, these three, were governors of, the, uh, of Jerusalem. And they were actually likely... And Tobiah was also mentioned too in Josephus, who is an ancient historian. These were likely Jewish people, like the Samaritans. I told you about the ten tribes that intermingled and worshipped false gods. The, the evidence points that these people were those people. Like, why would I want this? They're, there's shame for them because they had mixed with the, inter, with the people and they had stopped worshipping the God of the Bible. That's why we talk about the good Samaritan. Samaritans were hated people because they did not follow the rules of God. And these people now are threatening them. They're not happy. Same with 19 and 20. Right? They are jeering at them. And this is going to continue to escalate. So he's taking risks because they're saying, are you breaking the king's rules? Trying to threaten them. Be like, are you disobeying the king? Even though we have letters... If you get enough people behind the idea that you're disobeying the king, they could just kill you themselves. Right? So he's taking all this risk. And this you'll see as the chapters go on, this confrontation with these three people is going to continue to escalate. But he's taking a risk because he knew that everyone's going to support what he's doing. Right? And also, like I said, the support from the people. He didn't know if they're going to support him or not. So he's taking all this risk. Spoiler alert, all those risks were used for God's kingdom and the walls were rebuilt and those people were rebuked and God did work through Nehemiah. So what risks are we taking for Jesus, brothers and sisters, friends and family? Are we taking risks for Jesus? Nehemiah took some big risks, losing his job, going to the wilderness, facing those who opposed them. He could have stayed in the palace. But, and I think believe, being a believer, Nehemiah in this book is trying to show us that being a believer in Jesus carries risks. Risks to do good for his kingdom. Right? Is Jesus worth more than your relationships? Is he worth more than your job? Is he worth more than your comforts? God is calling you to take faith-filled risks to have an impact in Kuwait, right here. And Jesus himself says the same thing. He says, if you do not forsake everyone, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. So Jesus has some hard words. right? Jesus confirms what Nehemiah did. He said, you, it's, you need to love God so much that it's like hating your parents and your children and your family. preaching to myself too because I I struggle with this as well because I love the relationships I have. I love comfort. 
I love the easy life. Right? But that is not what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to take risks for his kingdom. Because those risks, God will honor those risks. Now, if you're taking a risk for doing something wrong or for yourself, unlikely. But if you're taking a risk to share Jesus with your coworkers, with your students, with your boss, God's going to honor that. I've mentioned before about, check my time here, about um, teaching my students the line, the witch in the wardrobe, which is an allegory. Do you think that had no risk? No, that would mean that was allowed by my administration? Absolutely not. I did it with risk so that I could, it was still a book, so I was kind of somewhat legitimate, but also if anybody looked into it, that could have cost me my job then. But I did it because I wanted the kids to know about Jesus, and they learned about Jesus. I even share with them scripture on Easter Sunday at work. Right, and that takes huge risk. Now, I took wisdom as well. I took the papers back when I was done, just to make sure. But anybody could have been like, this person's teaching us about Jesus. So if, you're, if there's people, you know the people in your mind, the risks that you need to take. We all have different jobs. We all have different influences and relationships. But whoever that coity is at work or that expat non-Christian friend asking about coming to church, God will bless those risks, but it is a risk. You are stepping out there like Nehemiah did. God will bless it. Maybe not immediately. Maybe there will be a planting of a seed that somebody else will come along and share Jesus or strengthen their relationship with God. Right? Nehemiah's risk was rewarded, as we will see going further. And I think yours will be too. You know, with, with that risk I took sharing the language or wardrobe, many students asked a lot of questions. Many students asked for a copy of the Bible on their phone. Now, I didn't have, like, a conversion experience in my time with them, but I could have been one seed in their lives. And if we all do this as believers in Kuwait, we could transform this entire country. Right? We, people always say, like, Kuwait is such a dark place because of Islam. Well, how do you make it light? You share the light, right? So we need to do this as believers to share the light of Jesus. It's good news. So we need to look for opportunities. We need to take risks. And we also need to plan. Planning is part of it. He saw an opportunity. He took those big risks. But he also had a plan in mind. A pretty detailed plan in his mind as well. Or he wrote, maybe he wrote it down. We don't know. But he was ready for God to answer what he would do. He, first of all, gives them, here's how long we'll be away. Tells the gang. He's like, this is my vision. I'll be away for this long. King said that was okay. He asked for letters as he goes to these different countries, the governors, so he's not killed. Good plan. He also asked for a keeper of the forest to build, rebuild the walls. You need timber for that. So he's thinking about the details, right? Just, it's, not a, it's not a grand vision with no details. He has a plan in his mind. He has a plan for the city to be rebuilt and a place for him to live. He's thinking about his own welfare. He's thinking he's going to be there a long time. 
Verse 9, he executes that plan. Right? He goes. He gives the letters. Everything's approved because of the plan he made. Verses 11 to 18. He has another plan. He's going to, I need to inspect this for myself because he heard the report from his brother. He's like, I need to do my own inspection. I'm not going to tell anybody. So I want to see what God's vision is as I actually look at it. So he goes around the walls, checking what's destroyed, what needs to be rebuilt, how is it to be rebuilt. He told no one. But after he has a vision, he has a clear plan of seeing the walls himself. Then he tells the people in verse 70 and 17. He rallies the people. He's like, we can, re we can do this. Ladies and gentlemen, we can do this for God's kingdom because I saw what it's like. It's broken, and we can restore that shame we talked about in chapter 1 to honor if we do the work. So he tells his vision and his plan, and they get behind it, and they are excited for it because he has a vision with a clear plan of instruction. What is our vision? What is your vision for the kingdom of God in Kuwait? How do you execute it? What do you want to do for God's kingdom here? If you want to grow your relationship before you leave Kuwait, none of us are here forever. Well, maybe some of us are, but most of us are not. If you want to share with more people the gospel, if you want to start a Bible study, if you want to help the poor, if you want to invest into your kids. The Bible says that people perish without vision. So if you have no vision for your life besides going to work every day, this becomes a very lonely and depressing place. Because you're just doing the same thing, you're just on the wheel, trying to make a bunch of money. And that becomes unsatisfying very quickly. But after a vision, you need a plan to get there. You know, last week we had a great fall kickoff. And that was a vision that my leadership team and I had. We want to get more people to come to our church. And it worked. We had a vision for it, but we also had planned. I had people, specific people do different things to set it up and execute it. So without a plan, it's just a, it's just a dream. God works through means. And we had one of our highest number of people at our service last week. So God has called you, I've said this many times, God has called you here for more than money. He has a vision for your life in Kuwait. If you are a believer in Jesus, God has a vision beyond just working here. God has a vision for accomplishing something great for his kingdom. Something that only God can do. But we need to, as believers, think of that what that vision is, and then we need to think, how do I plan to get there? How do we plan to get there as believers? It doesn't happen by magic, right? We have steps, we have things we do. So let's look. As we conclude, band, you can come up. Let's look for opportunities to be instruments in God's kingdom here at Kuwait. Let's take some risks for Jesus. Faith-filled risks to bring people into his kingdom. And then decide, pray about, I, I'm urging you, 
Spend some time this weekend. What does God want me to do here in Kuwait? Beyond just your job. Yes, God expects us to do our work and to do it well to his glory. But what else does God have you here for? What is God's vision for your life? And for my life? And then make a plan to get there. You know, our, ch our church leadership had a meeting on Monday. And we are also in the process of developing a vision for our church. It'll take some time to get there. And then we're going to develop a where we are and where we want to be and how do we get there. As a church, we are, the leadership team will be working on this over the next couple of months because we also saw this principle in our church as well. Yes, people are coming and it's growing, but we should be strategic like Nehemiah was about how do we get to where we want to go. What do we want to do as a church? We've got some things in mind to serve this community. I'll be telling you more about this in the, in the coming weeks and months. We're going to probably do our Christmas gift bag giveaway this year. We give rice and milk and tea to some of the poorest people in this community. And that's a way we can serve. And that's one of our ideas, to serve God's people here in Kuwait. And to serve those who don't believe as well. So deciding God's vision for your life and make a plan to get there. God answered Nehemiah's prayer and he was ready. He was ready for that. And we need to be ready too because God does work with stand up on our feet. God, please bless these people. Please help us to find opportunities for your kingdom, to take risks for your kingdom, and to have a vision for your kingdom and a plan to execute that vision. We ask for us in your great name, King Jesus. Amen.